Hey again, folks, it's your lovely host, Colin, here, and welcome back to another fantastic episode of the First Person Scholar Podcast. This month, I'm joined by Alex from our essays department, as well as two very special guests that we are purely ecstatic to have on the show with us. Come along with us as we explore the very nature of art and entertainment as they apply to the medium of video games. That is to say, your games need to be fun to be good. Whether it's the mind-numbing grind of an RPG, the frustration of seeing you died again after your 75th attempt at besting millennia, the terror in your thumping heart during a session of your favorite indie horror title, or perhaps worst of all, a typical playthrough of Icepick Lodge's 2005 classic, Pathologic. I think there's no denying the lasting, profound, and often overwhelmingly positive impact of these undeniably dreadful experiences. So without further ado, let's get introductions out of the way so we can get on with what I'm sure is to be a very interesting conversation. Who are you? Where can we find you on the web? And what have you been playing this month? Take it away, folks. Hello, my name is Ruby Seals. I run a YouTube channel called Codex Entry. I've been doing YouTube for the past few years, although my primary education and research is in a theater. So I've been applying that to kind of game analysis for the past few years and primarily been using Pathologic as the tool to do that with my series uh, Pathologic for those who will never play it. Hi, my name is Spencer. I'm currently a graduate student at Southern New Hampshire University. Um, I got my bachelor's degree in game design at uh, Lawrence Tech in Southfield, Michigan. And I love uh, <laughs> I love games writing. I'm an indie writer, narrative designer, and uh, Pathologic is just one of those series that is so compelling to talk about. Um, and this month I've actually been uh, playing, uh, I just wrapped up a playthrough of Near Automata, which I actually think uh, <laughs> complements uh, Pathologic pretty nicely with its uh, multiple playthroughs and uh, different perspectives on the, on, yeah, on the same uh, plot and narrative. Hi everyone, I'm Alex and I'm uh, the section head of essays here at First Person Scholar. I'm also a uh, features writer at RPGFan.com where you could find one piece of writing. I'm, I'm new there, so other stuff forthcoming. But uh, I'm also a English PhD candidate at the University of Waterloo, and I'm studying uh, mainly uh, the textuality of narrative design and kind of philosophies of player experience uh, in video games specifically. And yeah, so with that being said, a game like Pathologic and all its kind of weird quirks and experimental structuring really interests me. Um, so I did get to play a bit of that uh, before this podcast, uh, just the, the first day as The Bachelor, and uh, a very failed attempt to be high respects. But um, yeah, I'm sure we'll be getting more into that. Um, so yeah, good to be here. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Once again, I'm your lovely host, Colin Walsh, and you can find me online on Instagram at CWGlassworks or at www.cwglassworks.ca. And this month, this week at least, I've been desperately and unsuccessfully trying to beat the village on Hardcore in the RE4 remake, uh, which, come to think of it, will probably factor in pretty well to our conversation this month. So with all that out of the way, Spencer, I know you have some pretty interesting things to say about how games like Pathologic try to actively avoid working with mechanics that offer a traditional or linear reward pathway. Would you care to tell us a little bit more about your thoughts there? Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> I feel like I should probably preface this by saying that like a lot of my uh, time in my studies has been uh, split focus on generating creative works and uh, applying theoretical frameworks uh, in the creation of those texts. And I just find myself uh, gravitating a lot towards the post-structuralist scene, um, uh, specifically uh, Giles Deleuze and Felix Guattari's Capitalism and Schizophrenia. Um, and I think uh, applying uh, someone like their frameworks to pathologic, like it offers an interesting interpretation to the text that I think might not um, that might not be there at first glance. I know that it's really um, 
applying a framework uh, like a minor and major games canon uh, to Pathologic can be really interesting because I think um, a lot of what's really popular, um, a lot of what's really popular in games can also be uh, applied as like what makes money in games. And I think it's really easy to um, disregard uh, what I think you could uh, describe as like disempowerment simulators um, as just as uh being as not not uh fitting into the framework of like what makes money and i think a, a lot of where uh, pathologic succeeds um is like it works outside of this framework it's hard because i i grew up on games crit i consumed a lot of games crit growing up um and i think that uh <laughs> reading uh reviews and previews can be just as fun as playing the game sometimes and pathologic is one of those series that just like there are think pieces on it that come out like every other month i think a lot of those circles that i'm a part of kind of got introduced to it with uh the 2019 h bomber guy video essay on it um and it succeeds yeah it succeeds in a lot of ways that like I think are con run contrary to what we think of as like conventionally good game design because it does actively, I, I think it's like one of the earlier earlier examples of games with uh, survival mechanics incorporated into it, where a lot of the time is uh, you're just managing meters um, instead of like fulfilling a power fantasy per se. Um, and I think with just how it, how it presents its plot, how it presents its narrative, um, yeah, it can be really fascinating. Uh, also, sorry, I ramble a lot, so feel free to like cut in if anyone else has like <laughs> anything to um, yeah include. Hey, we encourage rambling here. We're always very casual here on the FPS podcast. Uh, and that uh, being said, something you said near the end there when you mentioned uh, you know you're a very big fan of like the the game crit genre is <laughs> I think many of us, myself included, actually have a very big. Uh, Thank you to give to Ruby in particular for the work that she's done for bringing Pathologic to a wider audience. My experience with Pathologic is almost exclusively isolated to the content that Ruby's put out. Uh, and that still has kind of inspired me to the point where I've wanted even to make this episode of the podcast where we discuss concepts that are present in Pathologic, you know, things from hardcore survival mechanics, um, extreme levels of difficulty, like what I'm experiencing with the RE4 remake right now, or in the game that seems to come up on every episode of this podcast, Elden Ring. But yeah, that being said, Ruby, I'm very uh, interested to hear what you might have to say about some of uh, what we see mechanically in Pathologic and how it factors into this concept of, you know, games not necessarily needing to be fun or enjoyable to really leave us with a profound or lasting impact. Well, first off, thank you very much for all of the kind words. Yeah, from my perspective, I have never been one who to really understand why like, don't get me wrong, I get why games are very often fun. You know, who, who doesn't like a fun game? Who, who doesn't enjoy a good round of, like, Tekken or whatever have you? I, I know I do, very much. Uh, but this idea, this kind of insistence that that be the primary emotion that is explored and is the only one that's kind of valid to, like, try and drive the player to, that one, I have, that point of view, I have never meanfully understood it, it's always smacked very much of kind of what i think uh spencer was alluding to is the fact that that's the kind of game design that traditionally makes money that's the kind of game design that traditionally uh leads to multi-million dollar games making multi-multi-million dollar profits and no hard feelings against those games necessarily some of my favorite games fall under that i have entirely too many hours in ff14 I don't think that should be all games are either. To me, insisting that all games be fun is kind of like insisting that like all movies be fun, that all movies uh, allow the audience to walk out of the theater with this, you know, pep in their step, their jovial, like, you know, they, they had a great evening. And if that's what someone wants to sign up for, great but it's also very limiting to the art form. But with all of that said, Pathologic, I feel, is kind of uniquely equipped to push past the idea of just handing the player fun, because I don't think handing the player fun should be the only priority. I think there's a lot of emotions that can and should be explored 
outside of just being able to relax with a game. Uh, and the more we confine ourselves to that box, the more potential that we're missing out on for the medium at large. And Pathologic, as its own artwork, does a very good job, I feel, of uh, utilizing the possibilities by completely removing fun from the equation and handing you something that is intentionally not exactly stimulating, um, which in turn can serve to make it all the more investing on the emotional basis that it's trying to pull the audience into, if that makes any sense. To me, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and I'm actually quite interested that you're making comparisons to, to you know, other mediums here as well, because I think this limitation that we're kind of talking, talking about here, this Reggie fils idea of do games or games need to be fun to be good or, you know, need to be fun to be valid, uh, I think is very limiting. And when you look outside of the medium of video games, that's not even a question. Like there are so many pieces of uh, of art that are considered to be tragedy, whether we're speaking uh, strictly in visual mediums like film or even uh, something that's completely devoid of any kind of uh, visual material like uh, like there are many like concepts albums, th concept albums, things like that I've listened to that really leave me with kind of a gut wrenching impact at the end of it. It's not necessarily an enjoyable, while still simulating, not necessarily an enjoyable experience. Or there are other things that I occasionally like to listen to, like I am a bit of a metalhead in my spare time, a uh, bit of a fan of bands like Mishuga, and particularly uh, their guitarist Frederick Thordendel. He has a solo project called Frederick Thordendel Special Defects that I challenge anybody to get through and tell me that was an enjoyable experience and not noise from top to bottom. But that's still an album that I think about in terms of its overall impact artistically to, to this day, even though I probably haven't listened to it in the past three or four years. So Ruby, I absolutely understand what you're thinking, uh, what you're getting at. And I, I, I think video games kind of need more uh, of this exploration outside of the limitations that we kind of place on I want to say place on ourselves. I'm not a game as a game dev myself, but you know, people who are involved with the industry, even on the outskirts of it, like us having this conversation uh, in a critical context. But I think when we kind of remove ourselves from that zone of, of needing to, to be valid by being fun or being enjoyable or being stimulating, I think, you know, you really can push the art form a lot beyond that. I think a game that did that recently, uh, much to my own chagrin, because I waited uh, years for this game to come out was Scorn. I'm not sure if anybody uh, here on the podcast has any experience with that game, but, you know, I, I gave it a good two, three hours of really trying to push into it and understand what was happening. And as much as I enjoyed the art, it's not a, a, a fun game. It's not a stimulating game by by any sense of the word. And Alex, I know originally when you expressed interest in, uh, in joining us this month, you had actually uh, wanted to talk about how Shenmue is kind of like that in some regard, too, where there are certain points in that game where you know the grind or the monotony of it you know it's not stimulating it's not enjoyable it's not much but Shenmue I think many of us uh myself included would agree is is not just an impactful game but a, a landmark game yeah 100 percent um yeah and I know like when when Spencer was talking about the kind of uh looking at the game scan as kind of this like minor versus major divide I think uh, a game like Shenmue, which came out like on Sega Dreamcast in like 1999, was like I think the most expensive game ever made at that time. Like it was this huge like investment to make like this like ultra hyper realistic experience at a time that a lot of games weren't even attempting that uh, by making like kind of this like alive 3D world kind of like that you can kind of navigate openly. NPCs all have their own like kind of like fixed routes in the day. There's like a day and night cycle and things like that and uh yeah it's all these things shenry brought all these things that aren't kind of traditionally looked at as as a fun part of gaming if we go look at it from like that kind of nintendo perspective of just like making sure your moment to moment gameplay is like consistently engaging consistently rewarding for the player it's more just about you know living in a world and like there are times in shenry where you even just have to wait for like a specific time of day and so you just need to kind of come up with what you're going to do in, in that time of the day. You can kind of like go around the town, just like talking to people, seeing what they're up to. You can go to the arcade and play some games. You can um, listen to some of the, the tapes you got uh, collected throughout the game on your tape recorder. It's just like really trying to prioritize the sense of being like a lived in world over offering a fun experience. Cause I mean, like waiting is not something we normally associate with kind of fun in video games and 
you know, a lot of those aspects of Shenmue we end up seeing in, in Pathologic. Um, kind of most recently, uh, one of my favorite games of like the last five, ten years was Red Dead Redemption 2. And that was a game that really tried to like amp up the kind of like immersive simulation kind of experience of just like the pleasures of just kind of like hanging out with like characters, feeling like a part of a world rather than moving on to the next kind of rewarding quest or collecting the uh, latest MacGuffin or whatever. Um, so yeah, yeah, Shenmue, like, um, yeah, very, very interesting game because it's one that I think now people look back on to say that, you know, it's not fun to play. It's like a boring game, but it kind of started all these uh, little ideas um, for simulation that we're seeing in, in like really big budget uh, AAA games uh, even today. Yeah, and um, I, I think it's interesting that you bring up Shenmue, uh, especially because, like, yeah, I, I think it absolutely adds to this. Um, it, I maybe use the term like a, a disempowerment simulator, but I also think of like a lot of stuff that's going on in the indie scene or has gone on in the indie scene over like the last decade plus of games like uh, uh, Cart Life or Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor, where a lot of a lot of the central loops to those games don't take um, as much of a focus on like stimulating the uh, like primary pleasure centers that somebody like normally would typically come to a game for. And that's not to say necessarily that these like experiences are like more valid or like less valid because I think that we all, we all come to games for different things at the end of the day. But um, I think what really fascinates me about uh uh, stuff like that is just like this um this in inherent ability to um well <laughs> how how unafraid these games are willing to alienate their own audiences and uh maybe ruby this is something that you could speak to with your theater backgrounds because um when i was uh playing through both uh pathologic and the uh ice pick lodge uh developed sequel that came out like 15 uh <laughs> 15 years after the fact um the first place my mind went to is uh something like Bertolt Brecht's The Good Person of Szechuan or um Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot where like the the alienation the audience feels from the subject matter is supposed to get them to like think and engage with the larger discourse but I yeah I just I think that's one of the things that like that could be a source of value for like a lot of audiences that might not be the <laughs> might not be the easiest for capital to get its hands on. Uh, yeah, no, it, it's funny that you mention uh, Brecht and Beckett because in the videos I made, uh, the one of the videos I make, I extends m much of it is very much about comparing Pathologic to Beckett and his epic theater approach where he does his best to kind of push the audience out of a zone of comfort and all of that. Very pathologic, uh, very Waiting for Godot. I had a whole 10 minute mini doc about Waiting for Godot at the beginning of the most recent pathologic video because those, those two are deeply central to what makes that game work. And I think have a lot of lessons that game design at large could stand to I don't want to say learn from but like could benefit from utilizing more often there's a lot of people who do like I'm also very happy that you mentioned a uh, diary of a spaceport janitor I finished that recently and my entire the entire time I was playing it I'm just like this is just transfem pathologic and it, it's very much the same kind of like pulling you in by pushing you away, making you more invested by making you more uncomfortable and forcing you to consider what that discomfort means, both for your player character, but also for you as like a secondary audience member who, yes, is technically involved in this performance, but is also simultaneous to that still outside of it. And that, to me, is one of the things that makes games as a medium so unique and interesting. Because one of the big things that both Brecht, Beckett, and a whole list of people I could rattle off right now really try to do is blur the lines between uh, audience member and performer. Which is just games. That's games. I, no other medium is better equipped to do it, despite many others trying very hard to blur that line. Um, 
And I think that's one of the great strengths of Pathologic for sure is the fact that it's able to very much fixate on that line and call attention to it and strengthen itself with that recognition. I, I just uh, gotta say, I have to, I have to check out your videos now. I am embarrassed. I've never uh, come across like I, because like it, it's, it's stuff like this that like excites me so much just about the medium of games. And I think um, especially with uh, uh, theater is like a, a common baseline. Like you think about, yeah, games and theater, the primary central verb you're working with there is play. Um, like you're, you're encouraging people to interact with the text in a way that isn't just like some strict, like linear experience. Like even, yeah, pathologic has like the, yeah, original, you can play through three times from the perspective of different people. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I, I think a lot too of, um, uh, Tacoma that came out a little while ago, that was, uh, one of its central design pillars was used interactive, like live theater as, um, as it's like guidepost of, uh, <laughs> different things will happen. The world won't wait up for you to complete, uh, the primary checklist of all of the objectives. If you go and see one scene play out, that means you're missing out on something that's happening on the complete other side of the map. And I think, um, playing around with temporality like that is super, super fascinating. Yeah. I feel like that way that games like, are interactive like uh, theater and kind of that dual position they put the player in kind of like being a participant but kind of being a spectator at the same time and you're kind of like a spectator of yourself as you're kind of like role playing in whatever kind of world and role the the video game puts you in it can also lead into this like interesting opportunity for like self-reflection where it's like i mean like pathologic i'm not too far into it but i know that kind of like offers these kind of uh, very controversial and weird and dark uh, actions for you to do as a player and like actually making yourself do that, thinking about whether you're going to accept a certain request or whatever, like it can just like give you a bit of time to just think about the way that the game has like, uh, like a procedural, procedural object that um, is like incorporating you into the world and narrative and internal logic, it kind of sets up for itself. But then you are also the player, you are also yourself kind of bringing yourself into that world and character role. And so in that kind of weird split, it opens this opportunity for self-reflection of just like, do I want to accept this thing that's being offered to me? How do I feel about that and things like that? So. In that sense, um, I feel like kind of interesting kind of role-playing situations like the ones Pathologic offers or like games like Disco Elysium offer can actually like teach you a bit about yourself through that kind of split between spectator and and participant that the game puts you in. You know, I find this uh, idea we're talking about, about like confrontation reflection through the idea of role-playing actually very enamoring. And I'm wondering if it's, Part of the reason I was kind of uh, so drawn towards this idea in the first place. So I don't talk a whole lot about my own background as a visual creative on this podcast, but I think something that is uh, very relevant to kind of speak to the situation we're talking about is the type of work I do. Uh, so for those of you who are familiar with the work I make uh, as a glass worker, I make things that are uh, very grotesque and macabre just in terms of the general viscerality of the form. I like to make marbles that look like they have entrails inside of them, cups with bulging, bulbous sides and pustules and things like that. And the idea behind these objects is generally to make them an unpleasant experience to use, but to promote confrontation through the experience, much in the same way we're kind of talking about it through role playing. And I've always wanted the kind of goal of this to be self-betterment at the end of the day, right? To kind of encourage people to think about their biases, to encourage people to think about the things that they may find unpleasant or nasty to think about, but ultimately have a rewarding experience through the confrontation at the end of the day. Which for me in in a game like, you know, whether it's Pathologic or perhaps something that's a little bit more mainstream like the Soul series or Elden Ring, confronting that unpleasantness of the experience whether it's something more visceral like we might see in pathologic with a lot of the tasks that uh you know the bachelor or the horse specs is uh hair specs i'm sorry no i'm not pronouncing it right 
is uh, is tasked with doing, or perhaps something you know, like the grind, like in an RPG, or dying seventy five times in Melania and Elden Ring. I think thinking about those unpleasant experiences and the impact of them is really what makes these games beneficial at the end of the day, right? Like having to go through those those challenges, those unstimulating moments, that grind. I don't know. There's something just special about that at the end of the day. There's something special about that opportunity for confrontation and reflection that uh, that brings. And I hope I hope you folks can agree with me. I I very much agree with that. Although I think I'm kind of of two minds about it. Cause I I I am I'm of two minds about it. Uh which I guess we could affectionately call the pathologic school of thought and the Bennett Foddy school of thought. <laughs> because you say that and I immediately, immediately I think of uh getting over it with Bennett Foddy. And I don't know how far anyone's gotten into that game because it's designed to not want you to get far because struggling to get far is kind of the whole point. I don't want to spoil it too much, but suffice to say, if anyone has watched a proper Let's Play of that or somehow, like me, committed to getting all the way through it, uh, misery disregarded, you find very much that that is a game about kind of exploring the joy to be found in a piece of art pushing back against you. Uh, he had uh, Bennett Foddy, of course, if you played it, you know, he uh, narrates over the entire experience. Um, and one line he says that has always stuck with me, and I'm probably going to butcher the exact quote right now, um, but uh, he says, I don't want the sweet meat of the orange lying at the core. I want the bitter rind. Because I absolutely think there's a lot to be said for just the sheer joy of being handed a frustrating and kind of miserable task and then saying, I do not care how difficult it is, how exhausting or miserable it is. I am going to pull this off because I know I'm capable of pulling it off. And, like, that's beyond valid. I've done that about a million times. Me playing Pathologic was initially exactly that. It was me being like, okay, here's this big bad game that wants to prove that it's better than me, and I'm going to prove it wrong. And I, I went to play Pathologic with that kind of mindset. And the thing about Pathologic and its difficulty is... I, I, I want to phrase this very precisely, because I know difficulty can be kind of a slippery subject... But Pathologic 1, I'm not going to say it's an easy game. It has a very, very steep learning curve. But it's also very much a game that is easy to break once you know what you're doing. It, it only takes a couple small tricks, a couple small like trivia notes about the economy to just utterly break like the resource management and just have everything you could ever possibly want. But the thing is, in spite of that, like even even when e even when I was do when, even when I've done playthroughs where I've had way more resources than I've needed, where I am completely above water, where I don't really need to worry about all that much, I still have that dread looming over me the entire time because there's still inevitably these moments of like sharp difficulty spikes. Something goes wrong that I wasn't expecting. Something I, I end up like in a bad situation or cornered or whatever have you. And I can management uh, and I can manage it and I can have the resources that make it relatively easy to get by out of. But it also ensures that I'm never really comfortable. I, I'm never really like content or satisfied or assured of my safety. And I would say that's kind of the difference in terms of how the difficulty is used as a core ingredient between something like getting over it or Celeste, for instance, uh, or even like a high-end raid in an MMO or whatever have you, Dark Souls, um, versus how it's used in something like Pathologic or Diary of a Spaceport Janitor or uh, Kenshi is a game that also comes to mind. 
Yeah, I'm almost viewing this um, as you're saying it, like, and I'm kind of analyzing the genre and the mechanics and pathologic. I'm almost seeing it as like, so the difference between how these mechanics in terms of difficulty and skill are used in pathologic versus a game like Kingdom Come Deliverance. Uh, in Kingdom Come Deliverance, I think once you get pretty comfortable with your character, learning the mechanics of that game and learning to exploit the mechanics in that game, yeah, the game just becomes a cakewalk. At least that was my experience before, and I played it before a lot of the more uh, recent patches back when it was kind of an OG release. But I think how I'm viewing Pathologic now is almost like a game like Kingdom Come Deliverance, where it has that really steep learning curve that that just even that sheer level of skill that you need to be good at it kind of meets a really terrifying horror game with unpredictable uh, difficulty spikes and, you know, that looming sense of dread that you're talking about because you never know how you're going to get just absolutely wrecked around the left, uh, next corner or at least left at a massive disadvantage beyond, beyond anything of your control. So again, it kind of takes me back to the experience I'm having with the RE4 remake. When I say I've been trying to uh, beat the village for about a week, yes, yeah, since the day it came out, I've been putting in a few hours every day, and I can't get past the village on that hardcore mode. And I'm remembering my experience with that game as a kid, you know, when I was a little bit less savvy, uh, a little bit less skilled with video games. It was that same kind of feeling. I know that was a very action-heavy title for that genre, but I never knew how I was going to be left at that disadvantage. I never knew what, what, what was up, what was going to happen. And that is one of the reasons why that game had such a profound impact on me and why I still love it and still talk about it to this day. Yeah, I think I, I, I kind of feel like in many ways it's I, I don't want to say it's an issue with how we conceptualize difficulty, but more of a shortcoming because it, it's very again, I want to choose my words very carefully here because I know difficulty is kind of a slippery subject because it, difficulty is one of those things where it's like, what's easy for me could be soul-crushing for someone else. And, and this is why accessibility is very, very important and should be paramount in any kind of design, no matter what you're aiming for, in my humble opinion, as someone who doesn't do game design. But like, likewise, I feel like difficulty, as it's been kind of internalized in gaming very often just gets viewed as here it is now your turn to prove how hardcore you are how much of a gamer are you it, it, it's it's bragging rights it's flexing and again no shame if you're into that i've done that a million times i could sit here and brag about all sorts of gaming achievements i'm proud of that you know have led me one step closer to carpal tunnel that i'm very proud of but like it's also, it, it's very, it's a, it's kind of a myopic view of difficulty and what it is, uh, because I, I don't think it should necessarily be viewed as hard, harder, hardest, or whatever have you. I kind of view difficulty more comparable to, for instance, Colin, you, you said you were a metalhead earlier. Uh, I kind of view, in that same vein, I kind of view difficulty as comparable to, like, amp distortion on a guitar, where, like, sometimes it a, a guitar can be clean and easy to appreciate, and sometimes that's what you're in the mood for, but other times it can be absolutely blaring and overbearing, and as the end listener, you should have the freedom to adjust the volume on that, but, like, the level of distortion that's applied by the actual creator can utterly change, uh, very obviously, can utterly change uh, how it's in, uh, how it's consumed by the end audience uh, and the experience they get out of it. And in that same kind of vein, I, I think it's kind of better to, I, I feel it's kind of best to view difficulty as a, just another tool in the toolbox rather than necessarily uh just a binary is this easy or is it hard i uh wholly agree with uh everything you said about wanting to make sure that there's like a uh um a specific delineation between accessibility and difficulty um because it, yeah i i think it's um 
I think an interesting element too is like this might also be signaling a shift in mindset across generations of folks who've uh, like grown up playing games as well. Because I don't, uh, <laughs> I think about uh, the differences between Pathologic One and Pathologic Two, which um, I should say like I don't. Uh, Pathologic Two isn't like a sequel in the truest sense. It's just a retelling of the events of the first game, but with um, updated graphics, updated combat, everything. Um, I think like a lot of like the uh, closest comparisons that you could make for like contemporaries of the first Pathologic would be uh, the first Deus Ex, uh, System Shock Two. Um, these like very intentionally obtuse kinds of like genre fusions initially that could like get thrown under the broader umbrella of the immersive sim um but one of the key differences i think um because there is like there is like i i do want to be careful about my word choice here too because i do think there's like intentionally like borderline uh sadistic difficulty but there's also like the difficulty that is arisen out of just maybe non-optimal design choices and i think that that can be a, probably a big turn uh a turnoff uh for people giving the first pathologic a shot um at least that's that was like my experience just revisiting it um, to, for this podcast and everything. But um, one of the big updates that they did give Pathologic 2 was a much more uh, fleshed out combat system that could be a bit more approachable to modern tastes. But uh, just because they updated it doesn't necessarily mean that they made it easier because uh, as to compensate for that, they ended up giving much more depth to the kinds of combat that you can engage in in Pathologic 2 that wasn't there in the first one. But it's, yeah, it's it's hard because a lot of this stuff I don't think is necessarily, like, coming from a place that is trying to be purposefully exclusionary because that can just be its own whole bag of worms, which I do, which I do think comes back to just, like, oh, look at the kinds of people who were making games uh back in the day a lot of cis het white guys um <laughs> and uh, gaming i think over the years has definitely become more not not to say that we're uh perfect uh, by any means but uh, there have been some steps made to uh bring widen that uh widen that umbrella yeah, one thing that you mentioned that I'm kind of interested in is the idea of like the non-optimal design, especially looking back on older games being a form of difficulty. But then I kind of noticed, like, especially in relation to like Resident Evil, and, and Colin, you might have something to say about this playing Resident Evil 4, but it's like um, one person's non-optimal design or dated design is another person's narrative design. So like, for example, like tank, tank controls in the early Resident Evil game, a lot of people like see that um, on one hand is like very clunky and um, unappealing and just like not something they want to deal with at all. Other people see tank controls as um, a fundamental way that Resident Evil um, expresses its kind of uh, horror elements. So like the, the kind of multiple buttons you have to press just to like take out aim and properly shoot your gun at a zombie uh, in like Resident Evil 1, it kind of like emulates the feeling of being kind of like a, a rookie uh, on their own who uh, is kind of like fumbling with their weapon, trying to like get it and aim it properly, just and dealing with kind of like the fear of being in that situation. So yeah, it's interesting to, to see how like tank controls, which a lot of people just never want to see again, can be used like aesthetically and communicate some degree of uh, narrative meaning to other players. Yeah, based on this uh, topic we're on now, I actually got two things right at the forefront of my mind. One of them is uh, Sierra games. Uh, I'm not sure if anybody played those, perhaps when they were a little bit younger, but I certainly have some very frustrating memories of Sierra game design from when I was a kid and all those point-and-click adventures, um, which I think is an, actually a really excellent parallel to tank controls in Resident Evil games. Personally, I am of the opinion that tank controls can go to hell and never come back out. Uh, never crawl back out, I should say. 
but I absolutely understand how they can be used in a narrative context. And I think in a modern area, we actually have seen a little bit of a resurgence of the point-and-click indie game, which, you know, I'm all for. It's really interesting to see how some of these more frustrating and kind of occasionally, like in Sierra games, deliberately obtuse methods of game design can actually be used as narrative tools in that regard, which actually uh, leads me into the second point, or the second thing I was thinking about, which is a very... Uh, interesting let's say a piece of cinema that was released just a few months ago called skinnamarink i'm not sure if anybody has had the pleasure or displeasure of seeing that film depending on which side of the coin you're on but it is simultaneously like one of the most interesting pieces of cinema and one of the worst films i've ever seen if you're not familiar with it the way it's shot is uh, intentionally obtuse a lot of scenes of just blank walls things like that uh, won't spoil it, uh, but it is a horror, basically. It's about uh, two children who wake up to find themselves alone in the middle of the night and the uh, demonic hilarity, let's say, that ensues. Very interesting the way it was shot and the way the narrative was developed and presented through that lens of, you know, obtuseness or, like, to use gaming terminology, difficulty. But overall, like, I thought about that that film for weeks afterwards, but I don't think I would necessarily recommend it to anyone. And likewise, with Pathologic, I find myself having a very, very hard time recommending that game to anyone. Alex, I think even you yourself, when you expressed interest being on the podcast this month, I said, no, 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 don't play it. Go watch Ruby's videos. And I think for the average person, I still stand by that for, mo for the most part. I think like difficulty and accessibility, obviously, like Ruby was saying, it's a little bit of a slippery slope when we, uh, slope when we have that conversation, but uh, it is something that needs to be considered. Uh, and back to circle right back around to the point of Resident Evil, I absolutely have a better time with the remakes than I do with the original games, um, both in terms of gameplay mechanics, overall uh, impact and impression, and just generally how I feel about them. The thing that's interesting to me about uh, all of the talk about tank controls is that I, I kind of feel, and, and this might be a hot take on my part, but I kind of feel that tank controls... They've gone away asterisk because they're still around, sort of. They've just been modified and overwhelmingly put in first person. Uh, things like Resident Evil 7, for instance, and 8. Um, it makes it very difficult to walk left and right. Your move speed is drastically slowed down. You can still move a bit. But very often the monsters are so fast that it barely matters. Likewise, Pathologic 2 does the exact same thing. No matter how how precise your aim is with the gun or anything like that, e even if you're not aiming, strafing cuts your speed in half. Walking backwards cuts your speed in half. So it, it, it's still kind of around, but it's been modified and presented in this new context that... I I think depending on how it's utilized serves its purpose better because we 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 talk about the like in Resident Evil One uh, the moment where you're trying to aim the gun and it's hard to get a hand on how to angle your character and all of that to give you kind of the emotional state of like being a rookie who's in their first like under fire circumstance and like I, I think Resident Evil One nails that perfectly that game is a masterpiece but likewise i i think back to the emotions that made me feel when i play it and then i hold those up next to the emotions when in pathologic 2 i'm being ambushed at night by a bandit and i'm aiming my gun right at the bandit's head as i'm very slowly walking backwards away from him uh and then i pull the trigger and the gun is jammed and I realized I haven't fixed this thing at any point because I am a noob who has no idea what I'm doing. And it's the exact same kind of emotional vulnerability because you've had power taken away from you. This might just be, uh, th th this might be like uh, a more extreme example of uh, a very similar like uh, mindset, but I think of a... a I'm blanking on the name of the game specifically, but I know it was made by Kitty Horror Show. 
but what the act of installing the game itself uh, could almost be seen as like a layer of intentional obtuseness because it was all the the whole point of the game was about uh, spaces that you were not supposed to be a part of and the installation file for the game was hidden under like a bunch of different layers of like compressed zip folders. So half the part of playing that game is just messing around in the file manager to install the game in the first place. If anybody can find the, the name of the title, I, I'm blanking on it right now, but I think that like it comes from a very similar place. Like even that Far Cry 2, uh, you you can roll a grenade down the hill. Physics applies here. Like that's, it, it, it come, yeah, I, I think it comes from the same place. And I think that it has a lot of untapped potential for future generations of game developers to like really explore and get into the nitty gritty of. So what I'm seeing kind of at the end of this is that difficulty or, you know, obtuse game design or, the idea of games not needing to be fun to be good, or at least intentionally not being fun, like in the case of many of the examples we've been speaking about, it's almost kind of like a spice in the game maker's toolkit, you know what I mean, or in the game maker's arsenal. Like, it's something we can kind of throw on to make some really interesting experience, but I think it's really important to keep in mind the level of spice that some people can handle. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that a little bit of spice can achieve the same level of effect, let's say, that a lot of spice can have on somebody else. So yeah, I think We've had uh, an opportunity to have some really great conversations this uh, this month, but one thing I have to ask all of you, and this might be a little bit of a loaded question before we go, why why are we like this? Why do we like these games? Uh, I think a lot of people out there would probably, uh, like I was saying, have a tough time with Pathologic, which is why I recommend Ruby's videos. But personally for us, why do we enjoy these sometimes obtuse or extremely difficult experiences? I know there's that classic argument to be made about the the dopamine response you get for a game like uh, Elden Ring, Bloodborne, Dark Souls, uh, Sekiro kind of thing where you finally take down the big bad. But what is it about a game like, you know, Papers Please or um, Kingdom Come in the early uh, in the early game or Pathologic that at the core we really enjoy? Because for myself, I'm not sure if I can totally answer that question beyond more than it just kind of makes it more of an immersive experience, which I think is a lot of what we've talked about, but it somehow kind of makes it more real and present in the forefront of my mind. Agree or disagree? I, I agree for the most part, I feel. Um, for me, I for, for me, it's very much one of those things where I find that uh, struggling with difficult games inevitably winds up pulling me in more the the games that i almost inevitably not universally of course there are exceptions there there are of course some games that are very easy that i absolutely adore but uh for the most part i look at a lot of my favorite games and what i find are games that do their very best to kind of push back against me and that in turn makes me want to like immerse myself in them more it, it, it's the Brechtian thing. It, it pulls me in by pushing me away. The more I feel like a game doesn't want me to be able to pull things off, the more I want to be able to, and the more rewarding it becomes when I do. I would uh, definitely agree. I know, like, uh, Colin, you were talking about being a metalhead a little uh, earlier. I'm really big into, uh, like, industrial hip-hop and, like, <laughs> noise and that scene in terms of, like, music. So I think it's, like, yeah, it's, like, the kinds of candy that are the sweetest are sometimes the hardest to unwrap. Um, and I think that it's, uh, yeah, I think it does definitely come back to that Brechtian thing for me as well of just like, Hey, this, at the end of the day, it's about the experience you personally have with this thing and what it meant to you in your life, um, at the time that you come to it. Uh, and sometimes when like that experience hits just right, you'll end up thinking about that game for years after you were done playing it. Yeah, I first came to games kind of liking them as these kinds of interesting, interactive narrative experiences that, like we were talking about before, kind of put you in this dual role of being like integrated into the object and, and its design, and also like being the player who wants to uh, enact your own will at the game. And it's just like, it's not even about difficulty, it's just like seeing games that 
kind of play around their genre conventions and as a result put the player in new and unique narrative situations by doing that like ruby was talking about having like her her gun jam at like that moment of lining up a, a headshot and pathologic and, and that's just fascinating stuff that that i love to see i mean like i like games can offer so much more than just kind of these fun challenging experiences to master they can also offer these kinds of slower more contemplative and interesting interactions that just just show you something else that the medium is capable of and i always find myself gravitating towards those games that are at least trying something new even if they're not throughout their entirety just kind of consistently engaging or quote-unquote fun to play but that they're trying something and that they're using this game design and, and player interaction as a way of, of conveying this sort of narrative meaning and and yeah, that, that's what really draws me towards this medium. I love it. And I think Ruby, I think you said it uh, said it best when you said it's about that pushback. I think that paradox is is really what does it. Uh, there's just something about it, right? It pulls you in and it keeps you there. It really makes you wanna just get into the bones. But you know what, that being said, I cannot thank you all enough for joining us this month. I think we have had one of the uh, best episodes uh, in a, and we've had done it a long time here. Uh, we've had some really interesting conversations, brought up some really great points. So once again, thank you so much for joining us here today. We'll go around the circle, give a little outro, tell the people where they can find you online, and we'll go from there. Uh, I am Ruby Seals. You can find me on YouTube, Codex Entry. Um, I am also on Twitter for as long as that's still around, at Codex Entry. Yeah, give me a follow, give me a sub. I'm also I'm also on Patreon as well. And yeah, I think that's good for me. Yeah, I uh, just, again, want to say thank you so much for having me on. Um, my name's Spencer, uh, you, Spencer Bauman. Uh, you can find me on the trash fire that is twitter.com uh, at uh, S-P-N-C-R-B-G-H-M-N. It's just my name with no vowels. Uh, you can also find me on co-host, too, and at the same handle in case that goes down and um, in, in case Twitter goes down. And uh, you can find the games that I make um, at attemptingent.itch.io. And my name is Alex uh, Frenicek, and you can find my writings at rpgfan.com and some other places on the web. And uh, yeah, that's it for me. Awesome. So once again, as always, I'm your lovely host, Colin Walsh. It has been an absolute pleasure to have all three of you here with me this month. To the listeners at home, thank you once again for tuning in. Really appreciate your support. The FBS Podcast is produced by Colin Walsh in association with the Universe.